you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Today is Palm Sunday. It is so named for the crowd that came by to see Jesus as He rode into Jerusalem, waving palms in the tradition of a king returning home to his throne. You'll notice, however, that passage is in the Gospel, and our passage this morning is not drawn from that occasion. It's drawn instead from the only other time in the New Testament when palms are used to celebrate the kingship of Jesus. The book of Revelation, chapter 7. Scene's a little bit different. This scene is set not on earth, but in heaven. Jesus is here enthroned, not as a warrior, but as a lamb. The crowd is much, much bigger. Here, the scope of the parade is people from every tribe and tongue and nation gathered around the world. In Revelation 7, what we have is Palm Sunday reaching its proper conclusion. Let's read together now, chapter 7 of Revelation, verses 9 through 17. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, this morning our focus is on new churches, exploring the vision that God has given us to extend His kingdom in Dallas and beyond. We believe that God has called us to plant, that is to start new churches here in our own city and all around the world. Why? Well, I want to share with you a a quote that I came across recently that has stuck with me. It goes like this. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. That is to say, if you want hands to work, if you want people to toil and sacrifice for a cause, then give their imagination something to hang on to. Train their hearts to long for the endless immensity of the sea and you'll get your boats. Well, there is perhaps no place in the New Testament where the Christian imagination is trained to long for something endlessly immense than here in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation comes to a people who are suffering, 
comes to a people who are under deep duress and deep challenge, and yet it comes to a people whom God wants to build something. God wants them to build his kingdom. And yet instead of drumming them up to sort of go out and serve and give their lives away, the Lord gives them a vision of the endless immensity of heaven. And he says, in fact, this this belongs to you. It belongs to you. Live for this vision right now. The same is true for us this morning. What does it mean to live for the endless immensity of the vision of heaven? Well, let's consider the vision itself just for a moment this morning. What is it that we're looking at here in Revelation 7? Well, as John looks on with us, we are looking at the church. We are looking at the church that is gathered together under the lordship of Jesus. The church, as we call it, triumphant. The church redeemed, the church healed. The church, not just a collection of individuals, but the corporate community of God throughout time and space. No longer sojourning, no longer under trial and tribulation, but the church that is at last home. And what a remarkable home it is. What does home look like here? Well, home is the place where all these rights have been, excuse me, these wrongs have been righted. Home in the vision is a place where mistakes have been corrected, where failures have been overcome, where injuries have been healed. Most importantly, where sin has been atoned for. Flannery O'Connor, the the great Southern writer, once wrote this, there is something in us as storytellers and as listeners to stories that demands the redemptive act, that demands that what has fallen at least have an opportunity to be restored. In Revelation 7, we are staring at the consummated vision of restoration, of our cosmic appetite for restoration. Physically, spiritually, and socially. To push this a little deeper, to get this into your own blood this morning, I just want you to imagine it with John. Can you imagine this morning all the tears that you've wept? Can you imagine all the terrible thoughts that you've harbored? Can you imagine the wounds that you've borne? Can you imagine all the things that you experienced that you should not have experienced? The words that you have said that you can never get back. Can you imagine all the things that you've seen that you can never unsee? Can you imagine multiplying that by millions and millions and millions from places like Syria and China and neighborhoods in our own city? And then doing together what John describes in this passage, being shepherded by Jesus the Lamb to streams of living water, taking that water to your own lips and being healed of all of it collectively forever in body, mind, and soul. That is a vision of the endless immensity of heaven, ruled by the Lamb of God who shelters and redeems and heals people from all over the world, all colors and classes and languages. You say, Chad, well, what does that have to do with new churches? 
Well, keeping that vision in mind for a moment, I want you to think back, if you know the story, to Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 is when the apostles see a version of this vision. Jesus ascends to the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. Heaven is opened up to them, and they see a version of this. And what did they do? What did they do next with all of their resources and their time and their energy? What, what does God move their hands to do? Well, Luke tells us they planted churches. <laughs> they went out and planted new churches all over the Mediterranean world. At the end of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew's telling of it, we have the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Right before Jesus ascends to heaven, to this throne in heaven, he gives his final marching orders to his disciples. And, and what does he tell them? He says, go out and make disciples of all nations. In anticipation of this scene. And then what does he say? He says, baptize them. Baptize them. Why baptize them? Why not just share the gospel with them? Why do we have to baptize them? Because, because baptism is incorporation into a church. What you saw this morning is incorporation into this scene in heaven. It is incorporation into the people of God. Baptism is the sign and seal of Jesus' love for his church. See, when the earliest Christians saw Jesus enthroned, when they wanted their lives on earth to connect with what Jesus was doing in heaven, they planted churches. That was their strategic understanding of how to extend the kingdom of God. You say, that's, that's fine then. If it's strategic, does that, still, does that still work from a strategic standpoint for us today? I mean, is, is church planting or starting new churches still the strategy in a world of cell phones? <laughs> right? And scientific certainty and self-help gurus. Does it still work? I want you to listen to what Tim Keller, who's a pastor in Manhattan, New York, and Newsweek named as one of the most influential evangelists of our own time, what he says about new churches. He writes, the planting of new churches is the single most critical strategy for the numerical growth of Christianity in a city and the revival of existing churches in that city. He goes on to say that nothing else, not crusades or outreach programs or parachurch ministries, will have the consistent impact of dynamic church planting. He says this is an eyebrow-raising statement, but to those who have done any study at all, it's not even controversial. From all the evidence we have, new churches best reach new generations, new residents, and new people groups, period. From an ancient evangelist, Luke, to a modern one in Keller, the strategy that best connects the heavenly vision with our earthly commission to extend God's kingdom is the planting of new churches. Now, if you've been around PCPC at all, you know how important this has been to us historically as a people. David and Leslie mentioned it, but I'm just going to go over it one more time in case you missed it. <laughs> Since 1992, that's 25 years, God has allowed us to be a part of starting 166 churches all over the world. Now, don't let that sit in your mind as a number. Think about that. There are people, 166 churches are worshiping this morning. 
that God has allowed us to, to be a part of planting. Among those 166 churches, 22 were planted here in the Metroplex, and 92 outside of our country. Of those we've helped start outside of our own country, listen to this, over 98% of the members have come into that church by conversion. Jerry Gibson, who's our director of missions, who if you know him, you know he is not someone who's given to hyperbole, told me that by very conservative estimates, 4,500 men, women, and children have become new disciples through church planning initiatives here at PCPC. Not counting the impact that those churches have made in extending themselves and those communities. You may know this, exciting, but even now we're in the middle of planting a church here in Oak Cliff, St. Jude's, with Martin Bond. We've sent one of our own pastors to the Bahamas, not, a, not the worst place to plant a church, I get it, right? <laughs> Julian Russell to plant a church in the Bahamas. We are currently planting a church, or helping plant a church in Richardson, Texas, that is a church specifically targeting refugees, a cross-cultural church in our own community. Think about just how our life together, by God's grace, not by our own doing, but by God's grace, has impacted the scene that we just read in Revelation 7. What an incredible thought. Maybe you're thinking, well, then why aren't we just raising money for church planning? <laughs> I mean, you kind of know that if you've been with us already, you know that we're raising money for new doors here. Why? If church planning is so strategic, why are we not just giving money to church planning? Here's why. Because even in the early church, Paul raised money for a, for, a, for a church like the Jerusalem church. And in the early church, a church like the Jerusalem church was a hub church to plant other churches so that an investment in a church like Jerusalem was an investment in all the churches that Jerusalem would go out and plant for generations to come. David and Leslie called it an engine, refitting the engine. I love that, just that idea. <laughs> But the reality is because we're committed to church planning, attending to our mission here is an investment for the next 25 years of church planning out of this congregation. This might scare some of you who have children. It's an investment for your own children to go out across the globe and to be church planners and to give their lives away for the sake of extending God's kingdom here and abroad. We don't see those things as, as being um, in competition just put it this way, both here and abroad, the focus really does remain Revelation 7. That people would drink of the streams of living water, that people all over the world would raise their palm branches in celebration of the kingship of Jesus for the obedience of the nations, and that God would one day wipe away the tears, the tears of a, of a great multitude and humbly that we would have an opportunity to take part in that mission. What an incredible thought. Yet there's something more fundamental here than strategic planning that I think God really wants us to be motivated by. Let me finish the quote I mentioned earlier from Flannery O'Connor. She writes, there's something in us as storytellers and listeners to stories that demands the redemptive act, that demands that what has fallen at least be offered an opportunity to be restored. And then she writes this. The reader of today looks for this motion, and rightly so. But what he has forgotten is the cost of it. 
His sense of evil is diluted or lacking altogether, and so he or she has forgotten the price of restoration. She wrote that 70 years ago. Forgotten the price of restoration. So what is the price of restoration? Well, isn't it curious that when Jesus appears in heaven on the throne, that he appears as a lamb? I mean, his work as a lamb is finished, finished it on the cross, and yet he still still appears throughout all eternity as a lamb that was slain. Why? Because heaven forever wants us to remember the price of restoration. Why? Because the price of restoration is the measure of God's love for us. If you've walked in our doors this morning and you're wondering how much Jesus loves you, how much does Jesus love and esteem and care for his church? Look at the throne. He became a lamb. In becoming a lamb, he bore the condemnation and curse of God in order to gather us to himself, not stoically, but passionately, delightfully, forever and ever. By way of illustration, I just want to end with a short story this morning. It's about a man named Robert McQuilkin and his wife, Muriel. McQuilkin was the former president of Columbia Bible College in Columbia, South Carolina. He was a very popular president, grew the Bible College immensely under his leadership. But 10 years into his term as president, Robert discovered that Muriel had an incurable degenerative disease. And so over the next seven years, as he remained president, he watched her move into decline. And at some point in her decline, Robert realized that he could not both be the full-time president of the Bible College and care for Muriel. And so despite, despite, the, um, despite being a very popular president and despite the urging of friends telling him to put Muriel into someone else's care, Robert resigned his post to take care of his wife full-time. He said in two similar speeches that I'm going to consolidate here this morning, he said this, This is the easiest major decision that I've ever made. Muriel is almost always happy with me. She's never happy when she's not with me. So I have to be with her at all times. I made a promise to her in sickness and in health till death do us part. But there's much more than that. She is a delight. As I watch her brave descent, Muriel is still the joy of my life. I also see fresh manifestations of God's love for her, and it's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. I don't have to care for her, I get to. It's a privilege. One interviewer asked Robert, could she express her love to you? Robert replied that Valentine's Day was special to us because we got engaged on Valentine's Day, and so on that day in 1995, it had been a year since Muriel had spoken, I was on an exercise bicycle at the foot of her bed while she was waking up. At that, day, that time, she would often connect eyes with me, and sometimes she would smile, rare occasions, but when she would smile, I would go out and put a flag outside the front of our house so that our neighbors and our friends could know that that day she had smiled. I was talking to her that morning, and this is what I said. Honey, they say we're victims. We are victims, are we? We love one another, right? And with that, her eyes popped open, and she said, love, love, love. Those were the first words she had spoken in a year. Robert said, I jumped off my bicycle and I ran over and I hugged her and I said, we really do love one another, right? And she said, I'm nice. (laughs) And Robert said with joy, 
Those were about the last words that she ever spoke before she passed away in 2003. There are two things that stand out to me about that story, about the relationship. One was that, that loving Muriel for Robert was not free. It was costly. It cost him his career, his hobbies, his personal goals, probably cost him the life that he thought he would always have. And yet there's this statement, I don't have to care for her, I get to care for her. It's a privilege. Do you notice what's missing from Robert's words? There is no trace of reluctance. There is no second guessing. There is no resentment towards Muriel. Muriel is his joy, not his duty, but his delight. Friends, when Jesus appears at the end of history on the throne before his church, he appears as a lamb. He reigns as one who has paid not only a great price, but who bears the cost of that price all the way into eternity. And yet in Revelation, when Jesus talks about his church, he talks about her as his bride. He talks about her with, with joy. There is no second guessing. There is no reluctance. There is no resentment. She is not his duty. She is his delight. Why is it that we want so badly to extend ourselves for the sake of starting new churches here in Dallas and all over the world? It's pretty simple. It's because churches are the, are the enduring focus of the love and delight of Jesus. The enduring focus of the love and delight of Jesus. And this church, we've been caught up into that love, into the immensity of this vision in heaven where Jesus is enthroned is our lamb. And so our hands are moved to build, to extend, to start new churches for the healing of people from every neighborhood and race and tongue all over the world. For heaven's sake, let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning and we thank you, God, that you, you animate us with a vision of your love for us in heaven. Lord, would you train our hearts to long for that vision? And in training our hearts, would you move our hands, we pray for your sake. Amen.